I really love the definition by Joanna Macy of an activist being anybody who is active for a purpose that is bigger than personal gain. In the Shoalhaven, we're getting flogged by climate change, by fires and floods and extreme weather that is increasing in severity and frequency. We are in a time of great uncertainty, of grief and of despair. But I see women working together. Women who are using their unique skills, their creativity and their values to work within their capacity to care for planet and for people. Welcome to Active and Effective. I'm Sheree. Bolawani Naga, Takisa Frank Banaga, Aboriginal Gainja. Hello, my name is Takisa Frank and I'm a proud Aboriginal woman. Naga Banja Jin Nayawanya Darida. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the people of your nation. Naga Banja Biyayin Bagunguyin Bugiya Banawe Babunja Yuan Wanana Yawe Nawe. I would like to pay respect to elders both past and present and extend that respect to any other Aboriginal people listening to this podcast. So today I would like to welcome my guest, Dr Lorraine Larry. So Larry and I have worked together since the Black Summer Fires with Menyana Matters Environmental Association for critical forest preservation. So for me, Larry has been a mentor into the world of activism And as I kind of stumbled around and tried on becoming an activist, I found it really hard to call myself an activist. It was something that I saw for other brave people. And there's definitely this really negative stereotype that can come with activism. And if activism is a dirty word, so too are environmentalist and feminist. But here was a woman who was really embracing being quite radical and she has such a clear voice when it comes to matters of justice and also seems to find her place of fitting in amongst community whilst holding those values strong. And what I really admire is what looks to me like a really good grasp of balancing all that comes with doing this difficult, necessary and urgent work. So when I was working on this idea for active and effective stories from women that I knew, I knew that Larry had to be a part of this and we share the grief and the despair for the increasing effects of climate change on the places that we love. And we're both a part of a really engaged and mostly progressive community in Manana. So a big welcome to Dr Lorraine Larry. Thanks, Cherie. What a wrap. Thanks for coming today. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your PhD? Right. Okay. Well, I was actually born in South Africa and I came to Australia when I was four in 1960 as a little toddler. We stopped in Melbourne for about five or six years and then we moved to Sydney. So most of my life I've been in Sydney. And I must say that I've been blessed to be Jewish and have a very rich cultural and spiritual heritage. My father's father was a rabbi 
and both my parents came from very devout families. They taught me kindness, caring and compassion. And it's a thing in in Judaism called tikkun olam, which means healing the world. Olam means the world. Tikkun means healing. So my whole upbringing has been about doing good deeds, I I think, which I learned from my parents. And you can hear it's a little bit emotional for me to talk about this. And you mentioned in your intro activism. And I first became an activist when I was a teacher in the New South Wales Teachers Federation. I learned activism then. It was a time in the early 80s when it was the decade for women, 1975 to 1985. And there was a lot of women's activism going on, and particularly in the New South Wales Teachers Federation. And they taught women-only groups um, how to be visible and vocal as women in the Federation. So that's kind of where I cut my teeth on activism. Mm -hmm. I must say my father was a member of the Labor Party, and there's probably a bit kind of a history there as to why we left South Africa and my parents were probably activists themselves having been brought up during the war years and post-World War II. I know that they both worked for the establishment of the State of Israel. So that's a little bit of background. I think I've probably come into the category of being a lifelong activist and I mentioned that to you, Cherie, when you were trying on your activist identity. Yeah, I remember you gave me that Nana's badge and I think you called me an honorary activist at that point. Yeah, I, I said, yeah, you need one of these, Cherie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think identity as an activist is is something that grows and you were doing such amazing work and learning so much and, and that's really what my PhD was about, how we learn to become activists. And mm. I like to say that I was uh, stimulated to do it because of Tony Abbott's climate change denialism. Ah. He, you know, I, I've done a lot of work looking at um, how school children become environmental activists and worked with environmental educators and evaluated those sustainability programs. I can't tell you how many worm farms I've seen in schools. <laughs> but, awesome. Worm farms are great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then I thought, well, the kids are okay. They're going to grow up to be eco-warriors. Mm. But what's happening for adults? So the PhD set out to look at what would educate adults to become climate change activists. Okay. What 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 would be the the turning points? And I I think you can probably think about the turning points for you in our local community. Yeah. The the black summer fires, the the lack of preparation, um, and then the post fire grief and trauma, and it's always an emotional, and a and a and a passionate reaction. So I was looking for, if you like an educative mechanism for adults and it was around the time where we had, if you remember, Al Gore put out that documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. An Inconvenient Truth, yeah. It's kind of like around that time that 
I guess that climate change was entering really mainstream conversations. Yeah. 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 It was a pivotal moment for a lot of people actually seeing that film. So I thought, well, maybe it's got to do with, you know, adults learn through watching movies or making movies Mm. or short films. And so I got interested in that and I approached a university and I knew a particular woman who was a climate change uh, education specialist and um, that's Associate Professor Hilary Whitehouse at James Cook University. Yeah. And I said, look, Hilary, I've done all these evaluation reports of education for sustainability programs in schools like heaps of reports, all at least 100 pages long. What will you give me for it? Can you get me into a PhD? So So it wasn't your ordinary pathway to the PhD? Yeah. So I just sent her all that stuff and she said, yeah, this is great. We can, they call it recognition of prior learning, Mm. RPL. We can RPL you into a, um, a doctoral program. So we started talking and... I ended up, she said to me, have you heard about these older women called the Knitting Nanas? And I started looking into them and what they were doing and they were really interesting. And the way they were learning, I discovered, was this thing called social movement learning. And basically as adults we learn, like there's adult learning theory, right, Um, just like there is child learning theory, and we learn just in time, just when we need to, and in a, a way that works for us. So the nanas, um, what I love about the nanas is that they just always seem to get along with everyone from police to politicians whilst protesting mm. and whilst speaking for the big issues and they're always having fun as well. So can you tell us a story, well, the story about how nanas formed and why you think their approach is so effective? Great, yeah. So um, they formed as part of the mobilisation of the Northern Rivers New South Wales anti-coal seam gas community grassroots stuff that was going on in 2011 and then 2012 there was like this um, alliance of community groups called Gasfield Free Northern Rivers. Okay. And they got crowds of people marching down the main street of Lismore and they had these huge meetings and there was one particular meeting in Lismore in one of the big halls there and as a result of that meeting, the people who were organising Gasfield Free Northern Rivers said, we want to form some action groups and one of them is going to be in non-violent direct action and we've got some experts here from... Northeast Forest Alliance, and there was a few academics, um, mm-hmm. and they'll lead the group. And if you want to learn this technique and how how to do it, come along. So some older women who never knew each other before actually went along to this group. Yeah, to get trained in going into the front line and doing some non-violent direct action. Yeah, yeah. peaceful. Okay. You know, yeah. women want to be peaceful. Yeah. And particularly older women, that's what's attractive. So they went along. There was about 25 people all together, probably about seven or eight women. And 
They'd never known one another before. And they had weekly meetings, right? And the whole idea um, of the whole movement was to stop this mining company, Met Gasco, coming in and, and sinking their prospecting wells in a number of different sites around the Northern Rivers, which is prime agricultural land, right? Mm. And the thing with coal seam gas is it's often co-located with prime agricultural land just by the nature of the geography or the geology of, of how it works, right? Okay, yeah. So lots of community um, activism, mobilisation going on and these women going to this group and the women kind of got a bit frustrated that it was all talk and no action and they were there for action. Mm. And these guys who were running the group were, you know, the, the left-wing kind of progressive greeny characters and so the women were raring to go and they'd come out with these ideas and suggestions and like maybe we can sit by the roadside and watch the truck movements of the mining company and um, and then we could find out what they're up to. And every time they came up with these ideas, whatever it was, the bloke said, no, we don't want you to come up with ideas. We want you to make the tea, take the minutes and bring the biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> now, the really interesting thing is that whenever I tell that story, people are amazed but not shocked. Not shocked at all. Right. It's like, yeah, this keeps happening. So it kind of reached a bit of a crescendo in, I was told, the seventh meeting and the women felt like they were targeted and it was described to me like a pincer movement. The blokes went around the circle and targeted denigratory statements to each of the women, the older women, and I wasn't actually told what was said but when... This one particular nana who I interviewed right at the beginning of my research, so six years earlier, she had sat on that story for six years not wanting to actually be totally upfront about how horrible it was. Mm. She finally came out to me <laughs> and said it was so horrible. She said, no, actually what really turned us was this one meeting where they targeted us so mercilessly and denigrated us. And this is what she said to me. Some of the men involved in the NVDA were not treating the women, especially the older women, as if we had any agency, pretty much putting us in our little pigeonhole with suggestions that we provide catering tea and bickies and that we could do paperworky bits and pieces, which is certainly not why we joined the group. We were pretty much stereotyped and there were quite a few sweet little old ladies there. I suppose they didn't expect us to be on the cutting edge. It's a particular type of sexism. I love this bit. This is my all-time favourite quote. It's a particular type of sexism that suddenly, once you reach menopause, you've never had sex, you've never used your brain, you haven't heard half the words in the English language, and you're deaf. Yeah. <laughs> 
and they speak slowly and loudly to you. And so the women went away from this one particular meeting absolutely shocked, not knowing, like, what happened there. And they looked at each other and, you know, as you can expect, they said, what the F just happened? Mm. And they decided to, as, as we do, as women, go to the coffee shop and have a chat. Mm. And so what happened after they um, experienced that very negative targeting, they decided to have a bit of a debrief and they worked out that they were being targeted because of ageism and sexism and no one expected grey-haired women to be visible and vocal and active. And so from that minute on, they thought, well, why are we sitting there asking permission? You know, we've, we've lived through all these years of the women's movement. Mm. We might not have been activists in it, but we certainly learnt the lessons of being out and proud women and, um, and economically independent and, you know. And they just said, well, we're not going to ask permission anymore. We're just going to do it. And so they went out and, and did the surveillance and they like to talk about it as a form of guerrilla surveillance, um, sitting by the roadside watching the truck movements. And to pass the time, what did they do? They took their knitting and their thermos of tea and they chatted, you know, and it kind of grew from there. And initially, So the things that they were expected to do, which was knit and have tea... And then the things that they were unexpected um, so that they were actually launching a little campaign of their own yeah, watching the trucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the big thing that happened out of that was they kept going to the meetings because they, they wanted to keep working in coalition, right? That was the yeah. whole point. The cohesiveness of the whole movement, they appreciated that. They were old enough and wise enough to appreciate that that was important. And they took the information that they gathered to the meetings and um, what they worked out was this one place where they kind of stationed themselves for a while was having a holding pond being built. Now, what that means is that the water that comes out of coal seam gas prospecting is actually... a um, a mix of 640 chemicals that's pumped into the rock substrata to fracture it. That's why it's called fracking. And the mining companies manage to recover only about 40% of the water. And what do they do with it? They put it in evaporative holding ponds out, outdoors and then they try and say that the, the salts that are left are okay to put on your agricultural land. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, some of the women had been learning the science of coal seam gas, right? So they knew what this meant. They took that intel back to the group and the men said, oh, yippee, they rubbed their hands in glee, said this can be our first blockade of the whole movement. And so they were able to teach everyone in that group how to do blockading and I was told that they actually did what they called mockades 
They practised. And then they set up this blockade of this site called Shannon Brook and the rest is history. Yeah. I really love that story about the nanas, instead of rising up against the injustice that they were experiencing in that group, they just went and did the things anyway and turned away from having to put all that energy into trying to fix the social issues in that group and just put their energy into the action for the environment. And so the Nanas was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, that, um, and that's exactly right, Cherie. You know, rather than worrying about fighting for equality, they just sidestepped that whole issue because they knew that was kind of like not really the issue mm. and that they didn't need to um, go there. They just needed to get on with the job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got this wealth of experience and knowledge um, from your studies and from being involved in activism and of sustaining the work and you're a proud nana. So (laughs) I want to know what nana advice you would give to our young up-and-coming activists. Ah. So the whole time I was researching I was an honorary nana (laughs) (laughs) because you're meant to maintain objectivity. And then once I handed in my thesis, I thought, right, now I can be a, a, a full-on nana. <laughs> so advice to to any women, actually, and, and any younger people, because ageism affects young people mm. as well. You yes. Know? We, we don't think that young people should have a voice. So advice to young people, insist on being heard and go out there and speak to politicians and not accept just being a useful PR exercise for politicians. And we've seen that happen, haven't we, Cherie? We have witnessed that, yeah. 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 So, yeah, your advice is to use their voice. Yeah, use their voice, speak to more experienced activists on how to how to understand the politician's perspective and, and what and how they do things mm. and be a little bit kind of clever about creating the situations that you want to have in order to be heard. Like I've seen some awesome younger people who've learnt those skills and just know how to be really insistent. Yeah. And also ask, go in there with, in in my Teachers' Federation days, we'd call it Amber Claim, So go in there with something that you want to achieve, stretch it even further than the achievement you want so that it's bigger. That's what AMBIT means. And and have a a fallback position. Okay. So a really strategic approach to going in, asking for more than you want to achieve and hoping that that fallback position is somewhere where you actually are aiming for. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. I like so, it. Yeah, so have a whole lot of options and um, and be pretty strident and definite and, you know, pull the emotional punches um, mm. and, and just go for it. Go for it. Yes. I like that. So together you and I have been involved in um, painting, crocheting, rallying. We've danced and we've sung and we've laughed a lot in the name of protecting beautiful places around our area. So what I want to hear about is one of the events where I was an honorary nana myself and (laughs) we went and wrapped Big Spotty in Love. Can you tell us what that looked like? 
Oh, wow. Well, for people who don't know, Big Spotty is an, an amazing, amazing tree. She's 72 metres tall, 12 metres in girth, and she's a spotted gum, and she's probably 500 years old. She's one of our giants, and she's down here on the south coast. And she's in state forest, which means the area around her can be logged at any time. So with a number of other activists, we we had heard that the logging compartment that Big Spotty lives in is, well, at the time, that's like February this year, was due to be logged in September. And there was a lot of consternation and upset about this because giant trees are protected but only up to about a hectare around them. Mm. And as we know, the forest is really interconnected. And you've taught me that, Cherie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I love the connections between between things. I think um, as a permaculturist we're always exploring those relationships between things. And when you visit Big Spotty, you just can see what I love is seeing that that she has this like place in the canopy and that she's this one big tree and it's quite clear all around her and that she's in relationship with all those other trees but also commands this beautiful spot in the forest. Mm. So, yeah, tell us about the day a little bit. Yeah, so it took a lot of planning. Yeah, huge. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the first action that I had ever planned as a nana and I'd seen other nana actions and, um, and heard a bit about the planning that went into them. Mm. So I felt a little bit prepared, but not fully prepared for what really happened. And um, I knew that one of the things you have to do with nanas is make it as safe as possible because we all have different ability and mobility issues. Yeah. Um, one woman had just recovered from knee operations, I think, and... Um, Getting to Big Spotty was one thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's down like really little forestry roads that were really rough, so we had to get some four-wheel drives there. So we all kind of met at a particular point and then we hopped into the four-wheel drives and um, <laughs> got, got through the really muddy bits to um, the wallaby track that then goes down to Big Spotty and we held hands and made sure no one slipped and... Um, and, you know, no Nana left behind was what I kept saying. No Nana was left behind. <laughs> and we wrapped yarn around the, the girth of the beautiful tree and there was song. Yeah. There was song. Yeah. So um, I had been crocheting because I don't knit, I crochet. And you don't and, yeah. have to knit to be a Nana <laughs> and you don't have to be a Nana to be a knitting Nana. So work that out, folks. I had been crocheting with my very big crochet hook. It's a lovely big wooden hook. I got some big wool and I crocheted this length um, probably about two hands wide. Um, it looked big in my lounge room, mm. but when we got to Big Spotty, it was totally overwhelmed. But it was long enough to go around and to bit, put a lovely big bow around her and then women kind of put other things like knitting needles and and we crochet these sunflowers with red hearts in the middle 
sunflowers are like a symbol of renewable energy and mm. and the red heart so yellow black and red which obviously connects with first nations people which is such a beautiful thing yes yeah, so we wrapped pig's body in um in nana love and um and then we sang some some songs just to be able to connect with the space and nana's sing a lot <laughs> and it's a, a really beautiful way of getting in tune with things. Yeah. And while we were all connected around Big's body and singing, I looked up around the forest and and the canopy and the sun coming down and it was the most magical moment. It was just incredible. We had local landowners who'd ferried us in watching I can't imagine what they were thinking <laughs> I don't know if you got to talk to them Cherie but they seemed to be really grateful that we were doing this thing we also had lined up that uh, news agency AAP and they have an environmental journalist and photographer and the photographer was sent down from Wollongong to be with us the whole day and he took the most amazing pictures and they were syndicated worldwide. And afterwards I found out that um, it was syndicated. The photos and the story that the journalist wrote were picked up by 87 outlets. So it was incredibly effective. And and aside from the incredible amount of attention that it received in the media, it's visually spectacular. There's also a whole new Nana loop formed. Yeah, that was with Jocelyn, who'd been doing a lot of uh, forest activism with a a local group from Broomen, which is the area where Big's body um, lives. And Jocelyn had seen how the kind of activism that they'd been doing up to now actually wasn't getting the media attention that they were hoping for. But when she met some of the nanas and met me and then I was actually at Shoalhaven Council after a council meeting where um, Takisa Frank spoke in favour of a motion to protect Big's body that one of the councillors, Mudath, um, was moving. That's where I met Jocelyn and um, this other activist, Nick. And I said to them, you know, you really need to get the nanas in, involved in this and why don't we do something for World Environment Day? Um, can you can you take us to Big Spotty? And that's how the whole idea happened. And out of seeing how we operated, Jocelyn decided to start a new nana loop, which is called Knitting Nanas for Native Forests South Coast. Yes, <laughs> we will link to that in the show notes so you can get involved in that nana group that has been formed specifically to protect forests on the south coast, which is just one of the ripples from that amazing day where we wrapped Big Spotty in love. Yeah. So I think I just wanted to know a little bit about what role you see arts and crafts playing in activism because I think that's kind of been the place where we've met a lot. We've, we've you know, with Manana Matters, we were involved in putting art on the fence and it's been a big part of the way that you and I are operating in activism spaces. So what role do you see arts and crafts playing in environmental justice? Yeah. So 
you should know that I started as an art teacher mm-hmm. in high schools and that my life has always had art in it. But in terms of activism, I think it can be used really effectively for connecting with people on on a different level, on an emotional level. In terms of the Knitting Nanas, they've created a new form of sit-in, which they call the (laughs) knit-in. And um, and when you see a bunch of nanas sitting outside, typically a mining company's offices or a, a politician's office because they want the politician to change... Taking that domestic sort of what you do in the home stuff out into a public space and claiming space through something like crafting in public, um, I think is really visually it engages, it attracts and the women dress up. And this is, you talked about activist identity, Cherie. This is something in social movements that, People work hard at, and in marketing terms, we'd, we'd call it a brand. But the identity is really important, and and that sense of group and collective, and the stuff that you can achieve when you have numbers. Mm. And and in terms of social movement theory, there's this thing called the logic of numbers, and you want to get more and more and more and as many people as you can to be be a, a visually big thing. So when you get lots of nanas sitting and knitting or holding up knitting needles in a fearsome kind of skull and crossbone kind of looking thing, like who would have thought knitting needles could be so effective? Yeah. And um, that whole idea of needling politicians and, and all the metaphors that you can use. So it's the creativity and it's not just um, the physicality of crafting, but it's the mental agility of being crafty mm. and crafting a space for your activism. So it operates on a number of levels. It's really clever. And I think that, you know, when you combine craft and activism and you get craftivism, or when you combine art and activism and you get artivism, you touch people in different ways. And a new like kind of identity that people might claim if they're not quite so comfortable in the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, that nothing that the nanas do, which seems sometimes like you'll witness a nanas event and it's quite frivolous and fun and but it's all strategic. There's all, there's all this information that's gathered and it's used in strategic ways. And if you um, read the Nanifesto which you can put a link to that as yes, well. Yes, I will include the manifesto. <laughs> it is amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the cleverest document and it was written within the first six months of the women getting together by one, um, one of the particular originators, Claire Toomey, and she's a talented graphic artist and very, very witty. And that sense of humour and fun came from those early days. And let's face it, you you know, like a lot of activists get really serious and bogged down with the seriousness of stuff and you have to be able to to have fun to do this work and we don't want to get burnt out and the nanas are really conscious about being, you know, we call it self-care and also in the manifesto they talk about protecting the right of other protesters 
to be seen and heard and, you know, the democratic right to protest. And so nanas might not want to get arrested or lock on, but they'll do this thing called nana care where they'll sit with someone who is locked on and they'll make sure that they have water or they have, you know, whatever they need, or just chat. And at um, Bentley, which was a big blockade as part of the Northern Rivers mobilisation, there was a nana tent and they drew in younger protesters who were getting really, really upset and frustrated by the police presence and they would bring those young people in and give them a cup of tea and they'll say, hang on a minute, just chill. You know, we want to we want to keep this peaceful. Just don't let them get to you. Mm. Don't be overwhelmed. So yes, they are very strategic. And yeah, so a role of caring for and mentoring the young people who are who are learning all about activism and helping them to be more effective. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And showing that you don't have to be, um, you know, a raging, angry person to be an effective activist and get your message across. In fact, there's there's some kind of theoretical stuff that says you're more effective if you uh, are able to talk with people and engage them in conversation. And one of my other favourite quotes is when people come up in the early days when they came up to the first Nana Loop, Nanas call themselves loops, not groups. Um, <laughs> and I said to one of the nanas, what do people say to you when they walk past on the footpath? This is in Lismore. And she said, oh, they say, what are you making? And I said, and how do you answer? And she said, we're making a statement. Yes. And the nanas are. They're making a huge statement and it's really incredible, effective work. And so I've just got one last question for you. And I want to know how you've used creativity to help you with some of the grief and the anger. We've just kind of talked a little bit about that maybe that anger isn't the most effective thing to take to the front line. It's definitely a part of the process of getting active is getting angry about things and what you're going to stand up for. And so is grief. And so I'm interested in you using creativity to overcome some of the grief that comes with what's going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, after the the Black Summer bushfires and the area around where we live in Manana was totally smashed. The Conjola National Park was part of the Karawan fire and my partner and I evacuated. But when we and we were warned when we drove back in, you will not recognize this place. Mm. And we drove down the Bendalong Road, which is out one road in, one road out. And sure enough, it was just blackened tree trunks and a scene that we had never been able to see before, the ocean, because it had always been trees. And that was so emotionally draining and fraught. And we came into a community of people whose eyes were just exhausted, whose bodies were just exhausted, and people talking to me saying, I don't know why I can't get out of bed until midday. I don't know why I'm so 
fragile and teary and I just don't have any energy. And um, I've been through other grief situations and I know what that kind of burnout or depression looks like. And I said, you're depressed. Yeah. You are depressed. And it's going to take time and you just have to try and go with the flow and, and do happy things. And I looked around and there was one block of land that wasn't fire affected. Mm. And that's the land that was slated for development. And we all felt we have to save that piece of land. It's the last bit of forest amongst the whole of the Condola National Park. And so getting involved in that campaign Mm. is one way of dealing with grief. And there's been a lot of psychological um, work since the bushfires to look at how best to deal with that whole psychology and also the anxiety that we feel with, with the recognition of climate change, which we know is called eco-anxiety. And then we decided in, in Manana Matters to occupy the fence <laughs> and we started putting art on the fence and then it, the idea grew, let's have a whole weekend yeah. of, of an art exhibition, you know, like am I allowed to swear on this? Yes, we're yeah. allowed to swear. Yeah, we have yeah. an official language warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fuck that developer. It's our fence. It's not his fence. Yeah. And yeah. so this fence around the um, really special piece of land became ours. We claimed it back. So, And it started in just these little ripples of, um, you know, the suggestion and then some some of us local people doing crafts and ended up being a whole major event that had lots of Sydney leading artists alongside us occupying the fence with art and creativity and a voice for the biodiversity around there. Just to wrap up, I just want to ask in a few words, um, in regards specifically to local environment and climate change, what has you fired up right now? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm a bit depleted, I must say. Mm. Um, Being fired up is is a, a little bit hard, but I think what I'm working on at the moment is trying to bring people to a place of feeling okay about the grief so that we can be active, and I've managed to engage the support of an amazing ecotherapist person, Karen Coombs-Valiantis, who works in this thing called ecotherapy and nature health kind of stuff, and she gets people to write eco-poetry, and I've experienced her facilitation, and I... um, it's really helped me just to go with the flow a bit because this is such an overwhelming time. It's um, in, in all humanity's experience, we've never had anything like this. A friend of mine sent me a beautiful birthday present and it's Vandana Shiva's book, Making Peace with the Earth. And she says in this book, Making Peace with the Earth, the bigger problem is the ongoing war against the earth. Mm. And um, so how do we make peace with the earth and how do we overcome that overwhelmment of making peace with the earth so that we can transition to um, 
an ecologically sustainable world when we're really probably over 1.5 warming. Mm. And so can you tell me what's bringing you joy on the daily at the moment, Larry? (laughs) My garden. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Gardening, walking my dogs on the beaches, the beautiful beaches around here, enjoying nature, um, talking to like-minded people like you, Cherie, and, um, and just connecting with, with wonderful people who, who feel deeply. That sustains me. And what is your source of hope at the moment? That so many people will hear this Yay. and see <laughs> your work and get your amazing calendar, which I know will be absolutely beautiful. And, and supporting amazing people like you and your support person, Gemma. <laughs> <laughs> Gemma is on the recording instruments today. Yes. So um, thanks for joining us today, Larry. Thank you for your mentorship and um, being somebody that I can call on in activism crisis. I'm really glad to have you in my community and I'm going to include a whole lot in the show notes where people can get involved in the Knitting Nanas and the wonderful work that they are doing. Thank you, Larry. Thanks so much, Cherie. Thanks, Gemma. And awesome work, you too. That concludes this episode of Active and Effective, a podcast about the many creative ways that women can find to be active and effective for the places they love and the people that they love and how we can lead joyful lives alongside that in uncertain times. If anything from this episode resonates, check out all the resources that are available in the show notes. Active and Effective is a collaboration of Sunny Road, Storywalks. It is made possible with funding from the Shoalhaven Arts Board, Sense of Place Grants.